the way through. So Andrea is going to come and read to us Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20, which you'll find on page 1001 of your Bibles. The Great Commission. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus said to Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the end of the age. So I want to read from Matthew chapter 1 the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So let us read these words together, beginning of Matthew's Gospel. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And I want you to listen out about the little literary things that Matthew has placed in to catch our attention. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Abinadab, Abinadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. Abiud, the father of Elakim, Elakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Akim, Akim, the father of Eliud, Eliud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathon, Mathon, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ." Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. Amen. I only made two mistakes there. (laughs) This is God's word. For most of you, this will be the best sermon you have ever heard on the genealogy. Because it's probably the only sermon that you'll ever hear. 
So I'm not saying it's a great sermon, but I've never heard a sermon on it. And so it's probably the best sermon you'll ever hear because you've nothing else to compare it to. But can I tell you how exciting I have found Matthew chapter 1. It's an introduction to the greatest king. We read at the end that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And all through, the picture has been building about who Jesus is. And this is Matthew's introduction to it. Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 is the title. This is the record of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Abraham. And I want to draw out three things from Matthew chapter 1 this morning. And the first thing is quite simple. It's good news, not good advice. The word gospel in Greek just means good news. It's not necessarily a religious word. A gospel is an announcement of good news. And this is the record of the genealogy of Jesus. If you want advice, advice is counsel on something you must do. But news tells you about something that has already happened, that someone else has already done for you. Jesus is not primarily about good advice, though you may think that. He's not primarily about adopting some ethics to live by or principles to live your life by. He is primarily about good news, a gospel about what he has already done for you. Imagine you're living in ancient Greece and a foreign army has invaded your country. And the army general in charge of protecting you is short of soldiers. And he sends out words that he needs every able-bodied woman and man to help come and fight. That's not good news. That's a request for help. But if the general has won this battle in a far-off part of your country and defeated the invading army... And then he sends out a message to the whole country that he has won. And that peace now reigns in this land. That would be called a gospel. That would be an announcement of good news. And the messenger who brought that good news would be called in Greek an angelos. Or as we translate it as angel. But literally it's the same word for messenger. So when Jesus is born, who shows up? Angels, literally messengers, divine messengers, announcing peace on earth, salvation for men and women. They didn't say, the greatest teacher is now here. They said, a savior has been born for you. So Matthew begins his gospel with this genealogy because the good news is about the life of Jesus and what he will do for us. The gospel is good news. But someone else has done not good advice about what we must do. The second thing is, it's good news because of who he is. And Jesus is given three titles here in, in chapter, verse 1. First of all, he is called Christ. That's not Jesus' surname. That's a title. He is the Christ. 
And the word Christ simply means anointed one. In Greek, in Hebrew, it's the word Messiah. So Messiah and Greek both mean anointed one. And when people were anointed, it was a symbol of the Holy Spirit come up, 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 coming upon them for the task that they were to do. So there were certain people who were anointed in the Old Testament. They were priests. They were anointed because their task was to represent the people to God. Sometimes prophets were anointed because it was their job to represent God, God's word to the people. It was the opposite direction from the priests. But they were anointed and they were filled with the spirit for that task. And the other people who were anointed were kings because they were God's representative of his kingly rule on earth as he was in heaven. And so the, Davidic, the, the king in Jerusalem was the earthly representative of the divine king in heaven. And that's why the king's palace went right beside the temple where God was worshipped, where God reigned on earth. The king, his king ruled his earth. And they were anointed for that task to rule. And the thing about kingship, uh, so um, they were anointed for that. But then as oppression came, people looked for someone who would be so anointed, uh, the anointed one, so full of God's spirit that he would, would, would um, accomplish the great task of, of, of giving people salvation and saving them from all oppression. So as times got difficult, they looked for a, a truly anointed one. More anointed than a king or a, a priest or a prophet or all of them combined. The anointed one, the Christ. And Matthew is saying Jesus is that one. The second thing we read that he's called the son of David. And David was a king. And the thing about kings is that they have absolute authority. And so here's the good news, not just because of Jesus' task as the Christ, but also the authority that comes from him as a son of David. There's a promise given in 2 Samuel 7 to David before he died that, that he would always have a dis, his descendant on his throne and God would establish the throne of his kingdom forever and his love would never be taken away from his descendants. And so even though the people have gone into exile and they've come back and the Romans are now living, uh, ruling their land and they don't have a king, they held on to this promise. Lord, you promised that one of your descendants would reign forever and that your love would never be taken away from him. And so this expectation of Someone from the line of David who would come to fulfill this promise and to rule again. So Jesus is the son of David, according to Matthew. And so he wants to draw attention to this. And so all through that genealogy, there's lots of kings there, but only one person is called king. And that was in verse 17, when he says, King David. And so even the rest of them are kings, Solomon all, none of them are called kings. Only one person is called king in the genealogy, and that's David. Because for Matthew, Jesus is the son of David that everyone has been looking for. And so through the gospel, uh, the blind men at the side of the road, what do they cry out? Have mercy on us, son of David. We need our eyesight restored. Why do they use the term son of David? Because the son of David has authority from God to, to restore their eyesight. Kings have authority. 
This son of David and, and the kingly line will have authority because he is also the Christ. So Matthew is showing you in the genealogy how Jesus is descended from David. But then you get to verse 16, where you read, literally, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ, of whom is feminine, and it's singular, so it's talking about Mary. Jesus is born of Mary, but he's not born of Joseph. But I thought, Matthew, you were trying to prove that Jesus is a son of David. Therefore, he has authority. I thought you were trying to prove, Matthew, that he is descended from David. But here at the end, you have to admit that Joseph's not the father. He's born of Mary and not of Joseph. So, Matthew, have you not blown your whole argument here that Jesus is not actually a son of David? That is not a problem for Matthew because he answers it in what will happen next. An angel appears to Joseph and tells him that the baby that Mary is carrying is of the Holy Spirit and that he is to give him the name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And then in verse 25, which we'll read next week, the last thing that happens after Jesus is born is that Joseph names Jesus. And by that naming, Joseph is adopting Jesus as his own son. You can imagine him lifting Mary's son as fathers in the ancient world would have done and pronounced the baby's names. The naming is the father recognizing this son as his own. If he didn't think it was his own, he would not have lifted it and named it. This is the naming ceremony is the father claiming this child as his own, whether in adoption or any, uh, any other way. So he will be called Jesus, says Joseph. And by that naming, he is adopting him with all the rights and privileges of his royal line. So Jesus is truly on the line of David. He is a son of David. Joseph's royal line now becomes Jesus' royal line. With all the authority to deliver his people as the name Jesus suggests. And so all through Matthew's gospel, Jesus' authority as a son of David is seen. Till you come to that ending, where all authority, not only in earth, but also in heaven, has been given to me. And so the theme of authority is all the way through, even from the first chapter here. So Jesus Christ, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why did Matthew want to put that in the title as well? Just as David had been promised, been given a promise that one of his descendants will always be king, Abraham was given a promise that through his descendants, all nations of the earth will be blessed. And so you go to the end of Matthew's gospel, not just all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, but go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so this view is that Jesus has come not just for Jews, but for everyone, because he is a son of Abraham, who was given the promise that his descendants would bless the earth. So Jesus has come to bless everyone. And so there are three implications 
just for this good news. This good news of who Jesus is, that he's, what his coming represents as the Christ, as the son of David, and as the son of God. The three, first thing is that he is making outsiders insiders. This blessing of all nation is going out. And even in the genealogy, Matthew is showing how others were touched, um, even though they were outsiders. And he couldn't have done that more clearly by the mention of four women. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. We know her name was Bathsheba, but he didn't use her name. Now, what's interesting is that in ancient times, women were never included in genealogies. They weren't important. But Matthew includes four women. But the other interesting thing is he doesn't include the, the great women of Israelite history. He doesn't include Sarah or Rebecca or Rachel or, or Leah. So why did he include these four? Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. It cannot be insignificant. What do they all have in common? Well, interestingly, they all have a, had unusual births, as Mary is about to have. But there's something even more significant about why he has mentioned these four women. Tamar and Rahab are both Canaanites. Ruth is a Moabite. And while we don't know Bathsheba's ethnic origin, she is married to Uriah the Hittite. So they are all outsiders um, from a gender point of view in a genealogy, but religiously and ethically, they are outsiders and also morally. Judah story, verse three, Judah was, verse three, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. It's one of those stories that you will never hear in Sunday school because it's, it's kind of 18 and plus. Uh, Tamar tricked her father-in-law Judah to sleeping with her. He thought she was a shrine prostitute. It was an insensuous act. It's against the law of God, against the Mosaic law. And through that encounter, she becomes pregnant with ten, twins, Perez and Zerah. And even though Jesus is actually descended through Perez's line, not Zerah's, Matthew puts in both names, as well as Judah and Tamar, in there to make sure that the, the, that the reader remembers the whole sordid story in Genesis. There's a scandalous story, and he draws our attention to the scandal of it by putting their names in. Then there's Rahab. Well, we know that she was a prostitute in Jericho, the Canaanite city, as they marched in. Then we have Ruth, who is a Moabitess. And Moabitesses were excluded as well, like everyone else, from the worship of God and the temple. And then we have in verse 6, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Well, why not call her Bathsheba? Why call her the mother of Uriah's wife? Because it's a slam on David, not on Bathsheba. Uriah was one of David's mighty warriors. And he, put, he risked everything to defend David. And then Uriah's away fighting one day. David's out there looking at his palace and he sees Bathsheba bathing and he wants her and he loves her. He has her. She becomes pregnant. And then he realizes the scandal that is he has to have Uriah killed. And then he marries Bathsheba and the child that they have is Solomon. So Matthew leaves the name of Bathsheba off 
not as a slight against Bathsheba, but as a slam against David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. You know, the one who David had killed, the wife who David stole. So here you have moral outsiders, adulteress, adulterer, incest, prostitution. You have religious outsiders, Moabite, Canaanite, Hittites, and they're all in Jesus' genealogy. The law of Moses precluded them from the presence of God, and yet Matthew draws attention to the scandalous bits, the outsiders' bits in Jesus' genealogy. Why is he doing that? Because he is a blessing to all nations. He is owning all nations. He's not leaving them out. It doesn't matter where people are on the social ladder. It doesn't matter what they've done. He has come to make outsiders insiders. As his blessing goes out to all peoples. Jesus is good news for us. Because he has always been in the business of making outsiders, those in the periphery, those who feel far away, insiders in God's grace and love. He owns them. The second thing we learn from the genealogy here is that he is bringing exiles home. Did you hear twice where somebody and his brothers was mentioned? Verse 2, Judah and his brothers. Verse 11, Jeconiah. And his brothers. Now, clearly, if you look at the Old Testament genealogies, they don't add women and they don't add anything else. It's just somebody begat that, they begat that, they begat that. They were the father of that. So, why add, add his brothers? What's the significance? Matthew wants to draw attention to something about Jesus in this. What is it that they both have in common? Both of those references are to times when people were not in the promised land, but they were in exile. Judah and his brothers were in the land of Egypt. And God brings them out of Egypt through Moses into the promised land. A thousand years later, Jeconiah and his brothers had been left off into captivity in Babylon. And God brings his descendants back from exile, back into the promised land. So the addition of and his brothers signals to the readers the sense of exiles in those two periods of history and the returning to home again. And Jesus, Matthew is giving us a clue that Jesus is in the business of bringing exiles home. Outsiders are those who maybe aren't part of Judaism and the religious heritage. But you could be part of the religious heritage and be exiled away from home. So he's not only making outsiders uh, insiders, he's bringing those who have, like prodigals, who have lost their way or who are in exile, who who are lost back home as well. The final thing we learn from this genealogy is that Jesus gives the weary rest. In verse 17, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. Now he, and he can do this, he's missed out a few names here and there to make the 14s balance out. A 14 and a 14 is two sevens. The next 14 and a 14 is another two sevens, and the next 14 is another two sevens, so you have one, two, three, four, five, six sevens. Now Jesus is born, he is the seventh seven. Seven is a really significant number in the Bible. It's the number of completion and the number of rest. God rests on the seventh day. 
Every seven years, the land of Israel is supposed to rest. It's to lie fallow so it could replenish its nutrients. And every seventh seven year, 49 or 50, was called the year of Jubilee, in which all debts were forgiven in Israel and all the slaves were freed. So when Matthew shows you that Jesus is the start of the seventh seven, he is saying that in Jesus, the year of Jubilee will begin. All debts are forgiven. All slaves will be freed. He is the ultimate rest. It's spiritual slavery. It's spiritual forgiveness that we need from God. Jesus is the ultimate rest. And so as you go on, the theme of rest will be there. So the famous verse, come unto me, Jesus says, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So Matthew in this first chapter, in his introduction, is also introducing that Jesus is the one who will give the weary rest. Isn't that what a lot of us just want this Christmas? Some rest? Spiritual rest? Particularly, you don't have to earn God's love. His love is a gift because Jesus is your savior. It's not advice. It's good news about what he has done. He is your savior. So rest in his gift of salvation. You don't have to prove yourself. In Christ, you have the absolute approval of the only one whose opinion who really matters. And he is in the business of making outsiders insiders and bringing exiles home. His grace covers all. The highest being in the universe could not be more affectionate towards you. And when you embrace this good news of of what he is for you, you'll find rest in that significance. You don't have to bear the weight of the world on your shoulders. He has come as your shepherd and your friend, your protector and provider. You can rest in his care. As Paul says in Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not all along with him freely give us all things? Each name here reveals part of Jesus' unique identity. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, who's in the business of making outsiders insiders, who's been in the business of bringing exiles who feel alienated at home, who's giving the weary rest. The hopes and fears of 2,000 years are met in his coming. And it touches our hopes and fears today. We need a savior. A savior has come. What do you have to do? You just got to trust him. It's about faith. It's about recognizing that he is your savior who will pay your price, who will rise again, who is the resurrection and the life and the hope of all the world. And he has defeated that enemy of death and sin and evil. It's already done. He's defeated it. And so the good news has come. The battle has been won. Will you choose to live in the peace that, that his good news and life has accomplished? Or will you choose to live as if He has not defeated our greatest enemies. Will we have faith in him? So as we journey through Matthew, these themes will come out again and again. And we will learn what it means to follow this Jesus and to put our trust in him. 
and to find the rest and the home and the sense of family that his coming brings to our lives. Let us pray. Lord, bless us as we receive the truth of who you are today. This good news, this announcement that a Savior has been born, that he has lived, he has died, he has risen again, and he is coming back again. May we allow the truth of who he is and what he has done for us to reign in our hearts as we follow him, as we trust you today, as we have faith in you. Send your rest, Lord, and help us to feel at home. Help us to feel, make us insiders rather than outsiders as we look to Jesus and as we pray for your presence in our lives today. Forgive us, Lord. Embrace us, Lord. Send your Holy Spirit to teach us what it means to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.